Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Arcady Martin, author of A Memory Called Empire, Texcalon Book One, uh, published by Tor in 2019. It's winner of the 2020 Hugo Award for Best Novel, Locus and Nebula Award nominees for 2019, and also on the Clark 2020 shortlist. So, um, thank you for speaking with me. Hi, it's nice to be here. Good, good. Um, so, yeah, uh, congratulations on the awards and the nominations first. I'd like to say that. Thanks that's, so much. That's a great thing. Great feeling, I'm sure. Um, it's a big honor. Yeah. Um, so, considering as an author, I'm sure you have bunches of ideas rolling around in your head. How did this particular idea rise above the rest and get, get written? So, A Memory Called Empire actually came out of some academic writing I did. Um, I used to be a professor of Byzantine history. Mm -hmm. And when I was getting my PhD and writing my dissertation, which was on basically border diplomats in Byzantium and the kinds of letters they wrote to each other, mm -hmm. I got deeply obsessed with the ideas of border trauma and conflict and empire and assimilation. And when you work on an academic text and an academic production for a long time, mm -hmm. a lot of the writing you do ends up being fairly removed and fairly dry. Mm -hmm. And I had pretty strong emotional and like aesthetic reactions to what I was working on. And I wanted to explore those in fiction. So that's why this story, as opposed to many other stories, it was a very natural evolution. Mm -hmm. So, um, Tell me then about the book, um, you know, basics like protagonist setting, the conflict that drives it. So the basic plot of A Memory Called Empire has to do with the ambassador from a small mining station in a space mining station mm -hmm. um, who is traveling to the big empire, which is threatening her home's serenity to replace the previous ambassador who has mysteriously disappeared. Hmm. Um, and if you wanted to approach the book as a mystery novel, the mystery is why isn't he there? And she discovers that he is dead within about the first 20 pages of the book. Hmm. So then why is he dead and who killed him? Um, but the larger scope of the book is really about what the protagonist, Mahit, is going to do about her relationship to the empire Tixkalan, how she feels about that culture and its threats to hers and how to negotiate for her people and maybe against them and also what the previous ambassador did and who he loved and why and what kinds of sacrifices he decided was okay to make. Mm -hmm. So it's a political thriller um, with a kind of emotional heart that's pretty anti-colonial mm -hmm. so considering the type of protagonist you could choose from why why did you settle on say an ambassador you know the sort of diplomatic circles i thought it was a good way to basically bring someone in from outside into the very heart of a political process mm-hmm 
um, like why why would this person be involved and being the ambassador is a good reason. Also, I really like writing politics and intrigue and reading about them. Mm-hmm. And I work in politics myself currently. So it's a familiar milieu to me mm-hmm. and what I think I can use to good effect. Mm-hmm. And so, and this sort of is looking into your own personal interests, you know, you could have maybe tried a historical made it a historical novel or a fantasy or how did you settle on sort of oh, science fiction? Have, well not a historical because <laughs> so the the perils of having been a historian a professional historian is that i probably am never going to write a straight up historical novel because i know how much research i would need to do <laughs> for me to be satisfied mm-hmm. and i don't have time i there's no way <laughs> um also, I mean, actually, I could have written memory as a fantasy, but I'm, I love science fiction, and I've always loved science fiction. I'm interested in science fiction as the, it's often traditionally called, like, the literature of ideas, and in the golden age of science fiction, that, of course, meant things like teleportation or uh, strange atomic science, but I often like to think of science fiction as a place to explore the literature of ideas in the sociological and political sense. Mm -hmm. And the ideas that I'm playing with in A Memory Called Empire, they're about rulership, they're about memory, they're about institutional continuity. And these are all interesting questions and interesting things to think about. But if you take them out of the real world and you shove them to an extreme, which you can do in science fiction, mm-hmm. um, you can sort of look at a, a possibility very close up and sort of turn it around and see all of its angles and sharp edges. Mm-hmm. So I never really thought of writing this in any other genre but science fiction. Okay. Um, so I, I plan to read the book. I haven't read it yet. So, um, and I don't think this would be a spoiler question, but does your space travel... Is it like slow, like I imagine sort of slow ships that move slowly versus like, you know, quick point to point travel? I have both. Um, (laughs) So in the Tixkalan universe, there is no like FTL drive Mm -hmm. where you can just go faster than light whenever you want, wherever you want. Um, Most of the time people are going very, very fast at sublight speeds. Mm. But... There are particular places, and in the books I've called them jump gates, which are basically one-way wormholes. Not quite one-way. You can also go back through them, but you can't go anywhere through them. They're like linkages from one place to another. Hmm. Um, You can think of them as kind of like a very narrow mountain pass between two countries. And you can go faster than light through that, from one side to the other, but the two places aren't actually contiguous in space at all. They may have no direct relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And each jump gate only, it's basically like a door. There's one side, there's the other side, and there's no other place that that opens to. Mm -hmm. So it's a network of zones. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the sequel to A Memory Called Empire, which is a desolation called Peace and comes out next March, March 2021, Mm -hmm. I do a lot with that particular concept and what, how that impacts communication. Mm-hmm. 
So would you say this falls into the category of what, you know, hard science fiction or is it sort of a mix? No. No? Okay. I, first of all, I don't really believe in the hard versus soft. I think that tends to disparage all of the social sciences, Mm -hmm. which are equally rigorous, just using different criteria. Mm -hmm. Um, But secondly, what was important to me in this book was exploring ideas about peoples and societies Mm -hmm. more than being strictly rigorously accurate about some of the more implausible science fictional elements like the space travel. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it is impossible for space travel to work like this, but I spent literally zero time thinking about the mathematical underpinnings of it. Mm -hmm. So, um, sorry, I had sort of a deja vu moment there. I feel, did you say something like that in another, I might've read or heard another interview where you might've said I might have. People tend to ask me whether I like sat down and did, did out all the calculations and like, no, Mm. No, that's not what I'm, I am here for. Okay. Um, also, I don't have the math. I'm not an astrophysicist. <laughs> okay. So with that said, um, was there any research you had to do for the book? Um, since you do explore ideas, did you do any kind of sociological research or just apply what you knew already? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, part of it was that I had spent 10 years of my life working on these same sociological questions as an academic. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that research was kind of baked in. Mm-hmm. But I also did a lot of research for the book specifically. Um, a ton about how people could survive as a permanent sort of floating generationship colony mm-hmm. of about 30,000 people, what kind of food they'd eat, what kinds of protections from solar radiation they'd need, cancer rates population replacement rates, that kind of thing. I did a lot of that to make sure that I wasn't doing something that would build a society that was impossible. Mm-hmm. And I also did a lot of fun research. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of different poisons in the book, and I spent a lot of time researching different poisons and how they'd work. Mm-hmm. And um, I also did quite a bit of research on neuroscience, including talking to several actual neuroscientists mm-hmm. whose very, very correct opinions I then proceeded to ignore and apologize for ignoring. (laughs) (laughs) But I wanted to know what I was breaking, if I was going to break something. Mm -hmm. And I've made some choices in the way that memory technology works in the book that as far as we currently know and understand about how human brains and human memory works are pretty much impossible, but Hmm. it was more fun to have them work. So, Uh, Hey, that's your, yeah, you're, you're the author. You get to create the world that you want. Yeah. And I, I think that basically if you set your own rules and you don't break them, you can pretty much do anything you need to do. Mm -hmm. It's really important to be consistent inside the world you've made, Mm -hmm. but that consistency should be to the world you've made, not necessarily to the world as it is. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Arcady Martin, author of A Memory Called Empire. You can find more information about her work at arcadymartin.net. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. 
please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. So as you were describing the book, um, I actually, so I have another podcast where I do interview people about history. And one of my interviewees wrote a book on basically the border Byzantium border history, like 10th century, I believe, you know, describing how the borders, I, bet I know who he was. <laughs> huh, I forget his name. And I may have, um, let's see. There's several possibilities. It could be Paul Stevenson. No, it was a Tur I think he, he was Turkish. Okay. Um, there are several possibilities that, but that interview I did sort of it, what you're describing brings me back to that, talking about the sort of, you know, the distances and the border towns mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, uh, border towns being culturally kind of distinct from their, their own capitals. You know, it's sort of like, Hey, yep. you're on our turf now. Well, that's my source material. Um, mm. a lot of it, I mean, 11th century, not 10th century, but still. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that just makes the, your novel more fascinating to me, you know, more draws me closer to it. Just thinking about that sort of, um, dynamic. So what are some of the things that not necessarily that inspired this book, the writing of this book, but sort of books, music shows, that sort of thing, um, that inspire you in your, your sci-fi imagination? Oh, there are tons. Um, I, to start with the ones that everybody knows, I really love Star Wars. I've oh. always loved Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other big tentpole one is Dune, which mm. did have a lot to do with how I wrote A Memory Called Empire. Mm. But to get more interesting and more obscure, um, my current obsession, um, well, it's an ongoing obsession, is actually with Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast novels and also Gene Wolfe's Book of the Long Sun and Book of the New Sun mm -hmm. as just ways people who do amazing things with language and who can create a sense of foreignness and alienness using only the far reaches of the English language. I also really love William Gibson, mm -hmm. um, especially his Blue Ant trilogy. Um, I reread uh, Spook Country recently mm -hmm. and just for a deeply claustrophobic and paranoid novel, it is so much fun to read. <laughs> Um, yeah. Maybe I just like deeply claustrophobic and paranoid novels. I also love John Le Carré, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's not sci-fi. That's right. just plain old spy thriller. Mm -hmm. um, and Tana French, who is a Irish mystery writer, who also does this kind of deep internality of character, which I adore. Um, and in the sci-fi realm, the people I love for that, the deep internality of character, are um, C.J. Cherry, especially her Alliance Union books, but also the Foreigner series, mm -hmm. and Elizabeth Baer, especially her most recent books, White Space novels, um, so Ancestral Night and Machine, and Max Gladstone, um, oh. his Empress of Forever, which came out the same year as A Memory Called Empire, and I got to do one event with Max, and was so much fun oh, cool. uh, back in the days when we could have events that <laughs> book is so gonzo like 
if I am ever able to write something that emotionally affecting and that completely off the chain absurd at the same time, I will have won. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so what do you, so when you say the far reaches of the English language, what, uh, tell me what that means. Oh, I, I just mean using words in really unusual ways, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of the right Mervyn Peake quote now. Um, his eyes gaped like wellheads. Hmm. Okay. Like you, that's unusual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you sort of, you, you can roll it around in your mouth, but it has a very distinct image. Mm -hmm. But it's, so, um, it's the sort of writing you have to be very careful with, you know, so you don't cross over into sort of the cheesy, you know, it has, make sure. Oh, you has, have to be good. Yeah. You have to be really good. Yeah. But I'm always interested in, the sorts of things that only work if you're good mm -hmm. because that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in, okay. So what, what, uh, sort of things inspire you in general, then non sci-fi books and media, you know, whatever is out there. I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I've been, in my day job, I work as an energy and climate policy advisor, so I've been reading a lot about the history of the electric grid and also things that probably normal people find very boring, like um, Federal Energy Regulation Commission rulings. Hmm. Um, but I do find these things inspiring, actually, because they're about systems and they're about ways of commodifying and controlling a fundamental resource. And I'm fascinated with that. And actually, one of the next books I'm writing is about water resources and power resources mm -hmm. um, in a sort of cyberpunk setting, a cyberpunk future LA. I think that comes out in 23. I have to finish it. Mm -hmm. um, that book is going to be called Prescribed Burn. Okay. Um, and I'm inspired in general by a pretty wide range of things. I very, very much love classical music. My parents are classical musicians. I grew up in that uh, milieu. I love Tchaikovsky and also more modern classical music, like uh, John Adams's Nixon in China opera, which is a thing that you wouldn't think would make a good opera, but somehow <laughs> it's, like, it's really great. Hmm. Um, and... The Mountain Goats have a new album like next week, and I cannot wait because the first three songs have been that incredible. Uh -huh. um, other completely random stuff. The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which like gets into everything somehow. Mm -hmm. um, desert scapes in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Back to Dune. Yeah. Thinking Dune. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It's, uh, the, so what you mentioned about energy resources, you know, control of energy resources, you know, provides both money and, and power to those yep. who can manipulate politically, manipulate the system to give them access and control. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think that stuff is cool too. I'm a nerd for that as it's well. It's fascinating. <laughs> um, and, and the funny thing is, is with all the wealth and power that comes with it, the, um, that world is sort of out of the, the general public's eyes, so to speak, you know, like it's a lot of, it feels like a lot of backroom dealing for, we don't think about it very much. Yeah. Um, unless it kind of breaks through into the popular consciousness, like Enron, mm -hmm. which is a moment where all of that backroom dealing caught up with some people. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
that was, but I think people knew about Enron as a example of corporate malfeasance, mm -hmm. not really what it meant for people on the ground in California whose energy, their, their electricity was being price gouged and not working at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it can feel like these uh, corporate boardroom spy intrigue novel e things, but it has very real effects. Mm -hmm. Most things happen in corporate boardrooms do yeah yeah i think the closest most people are aware of their energy is how much if prices go up or down mm -hmm. so but yeah it's a crazy world um the the world of energy um, it is and deeply fascinating yeah would you say with this book if it had a soundtrack what would you say that soundtrack would be oh god so I used to write with soundtracks all the time. And then for this book in specific, that didn't work. I don't have a soundtrack for it. And I've wanted one forever, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, but it resisted having a soundtrack. I think it's because it's a very linguistically oriented book. Hmm. It has, like, I was paying a lot of attention to language when I wrote it. Uh, and rhythm and the uses of language, both politically and just like in terms of how people manipulate each other and having a different rhythm than the one I was trying to write hmm. didn't work. Even if that rhythm was something really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is the only, the only book that that's happened to me with, um, everything else has music. So if someone finds a soundtrack for a memory called empire, I'd love to know what it is. <laughs> Would you say the book, is there any um, poetry tradition this book um, draws from? Several. Um, there's the poetry that appears in the book that I actually wrote. And I'm, I'm a mediocre poet. I occasionally write a good poem, but I hardly ever know why I wrote it. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's actually something I think about a lot because... As a prose writer, I have much more control over my toolbox. I know what I'm doing and what I'm capable of and where I can stretch a little and take a risk. Mm -hmm. As a poet, I have absolutely no clue. Sometimes the poetry god appears and shows me something pretty and good and emotionally resonant. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. <laughs> and if I knew why, I could do it more often. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote the poetry that's in the book, I used a lot of what I got from reading um, late medieval Chinese and Japanese poetry to, but translated into English mm -hmm. to get the sense of something highly imagistic, but in pretty simple language with no rhyme or meter. Mm. Okay. Because I didn't want my skill as a poet to matter at all or my lack of skill. Hmm. Interesting. Do you speak other languages? I do. Um, I speak some Armenian, some Turkish, some Swedish, and some Spanish. And did you draw, so any of, have you, did you draw any poetry from those, from those languages in any way, or? I think not really. I mean, the historical connotations of the poetry in um, A Memory Called Empire are very much drawn from the Byzantine court poetry traditions. Mm -hmm. But in terms of my own experience with reading modern poetry, I can read poetry in Spanish, but I could never, ever hope to write it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not that good. I'm not that fluent. And most of the poetry I've read in Armenian is historical or religious, and I never got good enough at Turkish to read uh, poetry in it. So, hmm. so that so that uh, sparks a question. So, is the poetry so? I, I hadn't thought about this before, but, you know, you have your court poetry, you have religious poetry, and then you have the poetry of the people, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. What sort of poetry do you have in the book? Is it? It's primarily court poetry, but court poetry that leaks out into sort of the poetry of the people kind of thing. And also some political poetry that is very much of the people and then moves upward into affecting the court. Mm-hmm. Um, because political speech of any kind tends to shift between registers mm-hmm. and things like protest songs and protest poems are a really easy register shift. And we see that all the time now in every society. Um, mm-hmm. I was inspired in a lot of ways by spoken word performances that I've seen at black lives matter protests. Though mm-hmm. so I actually like this is I wrote most of this book in 2016, 2015. Um, so I hadn't at that point been to any of the protests myself because I didn't live in the U.S. Mm. at the time. Okay. Um, but that kind of impassioned, pointed lyricism that is not confined to meter or rhyme was a lot of what I was trying to get to. Mm-hmm. So how do you measure the effectiveness of um, of a piece of poetry? Does in it... the book, in general, or... <laughs> Actually, <laughs> all of that. As I, as I asked the question, <laughs> I, I said, oh boy, um, this is... <laughs> it's not generalizable. In the book, yeah. like when I'm writing it for narrative use, it's like, does the thing that the poem was supposed to help happen happen or not? Mm-hmm. Um, does the street riot happen does the street riot stop happening Mm -hmm. um but in the real world efficacy of poetry is really about emotional response Mm -hmm. and that's individual so it's hard to judge because things will work for one person and not for another Mm -hmm. but i think an effective poem is one that causes an emotional response that maybe you weren't expecting and that could be any kind of emotional response because even in a sense even to me a piece of po- uh, poetry has a mu- you know it's it has a musical quality even if it's not mm-hmm. it could be di- dis- dissonant music is that the right re- yes. i think i miss you know uh i think i misused the word or said the wrong word it makes sense to me but but you understand what i'm saying that um yeah. you know and where do you find I guess this is just too broad a question. Sorry, I'm just kind of thinking out loud about poetry. <laughs> so do you do anything out of the ordinary uh, to complete your, your drafts or your final work, your final draft? What is out of the ordinary? So that's what you would consider out of the ordinary. You know, knowing what other writers do, do you have something that, that you feel is different? I don't outline, mm-hmm. which... People occasionally look at me like I'm completely mad Mm -hmm. because I write very complex plots and a lot of interlocking parts. And I kind of invent them as I go along. Um, But I also am not one of those people who, like, I I hate the 
plotters versus pantsers thing that writers talk about all the time. Do you write with a plot or do you write by the seat of your pants? No, neither. Um, I can't plan it all out, and I certainly am not writing things that are I'm going to throw away later. Hmm. It's an evolving process. Um, I've described it as being like super saturating a solution until it grows crystals. And then the crystals are kind of inevitable with whatever mm-hmm. you put in the solution. Mm-hmm. Like you're not going to get bismuth if you put salt in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So since, um, so the second book in this series, did you, I guess how much of it was formed in your mind as you were writing the first, as you began the first, you know, how did as you- I began the first, almost nothing. Um, by the time I was finished with the first, I knew that there could be a sequel and I knew where it would be set and who it would involve. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that there was very little point in writing a direct sequel to a unsold book, especially a unsold book that actually had an ending, um, that Mm -hmm. was not like the first third of something, but was a complete book. Mm -hmm. Um, and memory is a complete book and its sequel is also a complete book. You can just also read them together. Um, so I had it kind of in my back pocket and when my agent and I did sell the book and we were asked, well, is there a sequel? Could there be? I was like, yes. And here it is. Um, but I would have been fine never writing it. I'm really glad I got to, but it was, it's not memory stands on its own. I, tend to think in complete arcs, I guess. And also books have so many words, which I know is one of those things that just sounds absurd when you say it out loud. <laughs> but I can't imagine being a Brandon Sanderson. I mean, he's brilliant, but how do you write books that long? Hmm. <laughs> it's hard enough for me to write the ones I write, and they're not long by genre standards at all. Mm-hmm. Did you... um? Did you have to do much editing on, on the first book? Like, did you overwrite and then have to cut it, pare it down or? Opposite. <laughs> Technically, my editor, um, at Tor Books, Debbie Pillai, uh, she gave me an edit letter that contained five bullet points and an instruction. Mm-hmm. And the instruction was go rest, write the rest of the book, Arkady, <laughs> <laughs> which resulted in about 40,000 more words. Okay. What's the total count? So, um, for memory, 135,000. Mm-hmm. So a good 30% more book. Wow. Um, I did a little better on Desolation. I only had to add about 20,000 words there. What did but you... I underwrite profoundly. I'm speaking with Arcady Martin, author of A Memory Called Empire. You can find more information about her work at arcadymartin.net. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. What what did what sort of stuff did you add? Did you add to the plot or description or dialogue? In memory, I added, essentially, I expanded a subplot very substantially, oh. and to do that, I wrote new scenes and added to extant scenes. Hmm. And in desolation, I 
clarified a plot point by adding new new scenes, but less so. In in memory, there's a whole chapter that wasn't there in the first chapter. <laughs> hmm. Okay. So considering the writing you've done over the years, how has your approach to writing changed over this time? So I was talking about how I don't outline and how I just like let things coalesce. And I'm working on a novella right now, which is a locked room mystery, basically. And I've discovered to my unending chagrin that it's rather important to know who killed the guy before you write a mystery novel. (laughs) (laughs) So I've had to sort of adjust on the fly for that. But it's definitely told me that if I have to write on deadline and fast Mm -hmm. in in particular genres, like things that are more mystery-oriented... I need to do more planning than I would strictly like. Hmm. Um, I think I'm also much more aware of where my strengths and weaknesses are as a writer. Memory was actually my first novel. Okay. And that, I mean, first novel written mm-hmm. as well as first novel sold. I'd never done it before. Nice. So in a lot of ways, I feel very much like I'm still learning what I'm good at. Mm-hmm. And still expanding what might feel like a pretty basic skill set to some people who've been writing for a long time. Um, In A Desolation Called Peace, there are four points of view. And the hardest thing to do in that book for me was to learn how to shift between points of view over the course of a book and keep the pacing right. And that's something that I think a lot of people who start out writing novels or who write a lot of novels early on just don't even think about being hard because they're so used to it. So I'm still learning a lot. So you did mention your uh, historical research work that you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, have you done any other work and and also your current energy work? Have you done any other work that's influenced how or what you write? I think all of my work influences what I write. Mm-hmm. I've basically had two careers so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, we'll see what you ask me again in 10 years. <laughs> um, so the first one was medieval history and... I focused on empires, communication, borders, how people write history to remember particular things or not remember them. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the deep underpinning of pretty much everything I write and also how I've approached my second career, which is in basically energy and climate policy and also urban planning and... I come to that discipline with this sense that you have to consider the long history of a place and Mm -hmm. what its problems are and it's what its people need, Mm -hmm. not just the immediate solution. Um, And I work in New Mexico currently, and Mm -hmm. this is definitely a place where thinking about questions of land ownership and sovereignty and access and just, environmental justice in general are not just hundreds of years old, but over a thousand years old, if not longer. Mm-hmm. And being aware of the interplay of historical connections makes me better at the work I do. Mm-hmm. And what I, the work I do is what I think about. So that's what I write about. I, I write about what I'm obsessed with. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I'm obsessed with empires and why they're awful and seductive. Mm. I'm obsessed with power grids and what kind of political and economic control they exert over areas that they are in. Mm. Um, I'm obsessed with desert scapes and the fact that in all the major monotheistic religions, prophets come out of deserts. Why is that? Hmm. Uh, so all of that gets kind of thrown into a blender, mm-hmm. turns into books eventually. Are you familiar with um, the, what they call cli-fi, climate fiction? Yes, though I wish we could have a better word for it. I know. Um, I, <laughs> I, I refuse to apply it to my own work, even though I've written several short stories that could be classified as climate fiction. Mm-hmm. Climate fiction is fine. Um, and both the novella I'm writing now, um, in a more subtle way, and the book that I briefly mentioned, um, Prescribed Burn, would definitely fall into that category. And I think it's a vitally important one, and a really interesting one, and it would be nice if it had a name that didn't make me want to disavow it, but that's, yeah, we just have to come up with something better. I agree. <laughs> because I, I, it is an incredibly important thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the locked room mystery, is that a sci-fi mystery or is it a straight? It is a sci-fi mystery. Um, <laughs> it is a, it's a locked room mystery in the sense that there is a corpse in a house where no one can go except for the artificial intelligence that is the house. Hmm. So how did the corpse get there and who killed him? That's interesting. Yeah. And I, I won't go. I won't ask details on who's publishing it or, or what. But do you know? Can um, you say no, when? No, it's, it's announced, so I can say so. Um, okay. It's with Subterranean Press. Oh, okay. And it will come out in, I believe, August of next year. Okay. Part of an anthology or? Nope, standalone. Oh, standalone novella. Yeah, standalone novella. Subterranean does a lot of that. Oh, okay. Cool, cool. So, kind of a whimsical question. Um, when you were younger, was there? any power technology or fictional setting you yearned to have or to be a part of? Ooh, interesting. Um, I mean, I read sci-fi from a very, very young age, like far too young, probably. Uh, <laughs> I, I read the Cimmerillion when I was six years old, as far as I'm aware, because I know I read it on a school bus and that was the only year I took a school bus. Mm-hmm. That's not to say I understood all of it. Um, but the, the idea of of wanting to go live in the world is a really interesting one because I'm trying to think of one that I wanted to be in. Mm-hmm. And it's actually surprisingly difficult. Hmm. Well, what inspired you to... So, sort of two questions. What inspired you to start reading sci-fi and fantasy? And then what inspired you to get into medieval history? Um, reading it is the fault of my father, who also loves it and yeah. read it to me when I was very small. And then also it was all over the house. So I just picked it up because I was one of those kids and am now one of those adults who, if you leave printed material around, I will read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, why did I get into medieval history? That was almost accidental. I was actually a religious studies major in college, mm-hmm. a religious studies and physics major. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. I... Uh, secrets of the universe when you're 18 you seem to think that if you go about it in two directions at once you get <laughs> some answer at the end mm-hmm. uh so 
as a religious studies major, I went to the University of Chicago, and we had distribution requirements inside the major. Um, and one of them was you needed to take a class on each of the three major monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And I was looking for a class on Islam because um, I hadn't taken one yet. Mm-hmm. So and the one that fit in my schedule was a class called Byzantium and Islam. Mm-hmm. And it was a good class and I really enjoyed it. And the Islam was fascinating. And I got absolutely hooked on Byzantium. Mm-hmm. Like with that obsessive love for just the way that the culture approached its own sense of self. Mm-hmm. Um, because Byzantium thinks that it's the Roman Empire as if the Roman Empire never fell, and maybe it didn't, it just transformed. Mm-hmm. There's all this stuff about continuity that's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I had been planning to go into academia in some way at that time, mm-hmm. um, and that was what I was obsessed with, so that was where I went. Interesting. When you name the religions that you said it's the University of Chicago required everyone in the religious program to take. In the religious studies undergraduate program, there were several different distribution requirements. One of them was that you had to take a class that dealt with one of those, all of those three. Ah. Uh, there was a separate requirement that had to do with taking a class that was focused on theology, focused on sociology, and focused on ethics. Mm-hmm. So. And like some things could count for both. Mm-hmm. I just noted the absence of, of Buddhism in there, but that's not, I mean, that's, doesn't yeah, I mean, me. you, I, there was, you didn't have to take a class on Buddhism. Mm-hmm. I did, but you didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, so did you have any difficulties um, finishing a memory called Empire or getting it published? Not really. I mean, it took too long. I got very tired of telling people I was writing my first novel because that makes you sound like that annoying person in a coffee shop who's been writing their first novel for most of their life. (laughs) (laughs) But that was some impetus to actually get it finished. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough. I've been writing and publishing short fiction in the science fiction and fantasy space for about a decade now. Mm -hmm. Um, A little less, nine years. So I had a lot of connections within the industry and I'm not saying that that is what enabled me to get an agent or get a publisher, because if I hadn't written a book, a good book, it wouldn't have mattered one little bit, Mm -hmm. but it did help in the sense of, I asked my friends who had published books and who had agents to recommend people they thought would be a good fit for me. And one of the recommendations ended up being the agent who um, offered me representation. And I've been very happy there. So, Okay. So you've talked about your next book coming out. Um, do you have, actually, you talked about a number of your writing projects. Are, are there any other writing projects we haven't touched on that? Um, yeah, there's like, one. Um, so I'm working on a novel that I'm co-writing with my wife, uh, Vivian Shaw. Mm-hmm. And she's published three books with Orbit and some short stories and is also writing her own projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're working together on what we're calling kind of a science fantasy. So it's both science fiction and there's magic. (laughs) Okay. And it's it's something that we're really enjoying. We're about a, I'd say about a third of the way through it. So. And I was going to ask, so starting with short fiction, so why did you start with short fiction rather than uh, novels? Was that just kind of 
tiptoeing your way in or that's just what you preferred to write or um i like writing short stories i find them to be a very particular art form mm -hmm. and they lend themselves to my innate writing style which is dense <laughs> you can put mm -hmm. a lot into a short story and not have to explain everything mm -hmm. um which is nice but i think i started with short stories in part because I was writing my PhD dissertation at the time that I started publishing short stories and having one enormous project that was very long was enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I don't really think that short stories are like a stepping stone or even a way in to writing novels. They're very, very different. Mm -hmm. yeah. The skill set is really different. And I found it actually harder to go back to short stories than it used to be. And I'm kind of sad about that, mm. but I'm used to having like these very large canvases now. And how about novellas versus full a novel? Some books are just shorter. Like mm. a novella is a whole book. It's just one that only really has one plot as opposed to an A plot, a B plot and a C plot or several C plots. Mm. Okay. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, my website is arcadymartine.net. I'm on Twitter at arcadymartine. And I have a Substack newsletter, which is accessible from my website, which I don't update enough and should update more. <laughs> and I'll spell that for people. Um, it's A-R-K-A-D-Y-M-A-R-T-I-N-E. Yep. All right. Um that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I don't think so. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe and rate it if you can. If you want more fiction and fiction studies ranging from ancient mythology to modern-day sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. On my webpage, you'll also find written interviews and links to my social media accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I also discuss art, acting, comic books, gaming, and much more. Thanks again, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.